Hello friends, James Corbett here at CorbettReport.com. I hope you are familiar with episode 320 of the Corbett Report podcast, namely Echoes of World War I, China, the US, and the next great war. But if you're not, now might be a good time to watch that or listen to that podcast or re-watch or re-listen to that podcast because as Home Remedy Supply Corbett Report member likes to point out in the CorbettReport.com comment section, it is a relevant lecture that becomes seemingly more relevant with each passing day. And that's precisely why I delivered that lecture almost two years ago exactly at the Open Mind Conference in Copenhagen, Denmark, and why I think it is worth your time to familiarize or re-familiarize yourself with that work. Uh, on that note, uh, as Home Remedy Supply recently pointed out in the comment section, there was a interview video that the Open Mind Conference organizers did to accompany that lecture that fleshes out and gives context uh, to that lecture. And I never posted that to my site in, at that time, so I'm going to do so now. You ask, you shall receive. Thank you, Home Remedy Supply, for suggesting that. I hope that this will uh, refresh your memory on some of these topics that, as I say, I think are becoming more relevant by the day. Uh, at any rate, I do want to thank uh, Home Remedy Supply and all the Corporate Report members for your contribution, both monetary and otherwise, your contribution in the comments section and elsewhere. It is your support that literally makes this website possible. On that note, please enjoy the interview. I think we're living through an era that looks remarkably similar in a number of ways from the era of one century ago, where uh, we were in the period of buildup towards World War I. And some of the defining features of that era were the fact that there was a rising power, a new industrial power that was becoming a military, a naval power, that could challenge the ruling power of that era, which was still the British Empire. And that was something that was understood and foreseen in the time and uh, certainly foreseen by the military and naval strategists and the people in positions of power to do something about this new rising threat of the German nation, which at that time in the turn of the 20th century was still relatively new. The German empire had only been founded in 1871 and that consolidation had uh, really created this industrial flowering that uh, that created this incredible new power in on the European continent. And obviously the powers uh, in England, in London, looked upon that uh, quite warily uh, as disturbing the balance of power. So as a result of that, we saw num a number of events taking place that would have been unthinkable in any other era of European history. Suddenly, Britain was making alliances with France and with Russia, um, countries that it had been at, at loggerheads with for centuries and uh, in, embroiled in war, suddenly were allies as part of a balance of power strategy to hem in Germany. And that, of course, did eventuate in war, as I think it was intended to do. And so you can look at a lot of the things that were happening in that early part of the 20th century and look at a lot of the things that are happening today and see some parallels with the new rising power that is threatening the ruling power of our age, the American empire. We see China as a growing economic and military force in the world. And based on that economic clout and the military 
power that it is accruing, it's beginning to have more diplomatic clout on the international stage as well. And I think in the exact same way the planners of the uh, British Empire in the early part of the 20th century were looking at ways to contain and ultimately confront Germany, I think we see the planners of the American Empire also looking at ways to contain and confront China. And I think this is why um, it's not just myself who's coming to this this uh, thesis. Uh, there's a number of people, including none other than Henry Kissinger, and uh, people like Graham Allison has recently writ uh, wrote a, written a book called Destined for War, talking about how China and U.S. are on this collision path. So it's something that's certainly in the air right now and being talked about. And I think my take on it is the same in that sense, that there clearly are machinations going on right now to try to contain China that could very well lead to warfare. But I think my take is uh, differs from that um, by showing that ultimately World War I was an engineered conflict that was not just a random happenstance of an assassination in Sarajevo. It was the coordinated calculations of a, a group of people who, in order to maintain their power, um, really created a conflict that uh, did not necessarily have to take place. I think in the same way we can see that the creation of China as an industrial and economic power in our own day and age has been helped by the very same people who are now talking about them as this threat, including Henry Kissinger, who of course was the person who opened in relations between US and China back in the 1970, 71 era um, as a way for to prepare the groundwork for Nixon. But of course, Henry Kissinger was a protege of David Rockefeller. Um, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was Carter's national security advisor and played a role in the uh, reestablishing of uh, normalization of relations between US and China, also a protege of David Rockefeller. David Rockefeller being instrumental in the various organizations uh, and business alliances that have grown up between US and China. When you start to paint the full picture, you see that China's rise has been shepherded along by certain banking and financial interests. And the conflict itself then takes on a new light. What does it mean when both sides of this conflict are being engineered and, and, and shaped by the same forces? And what does that make our relationship to this conflict? Are we like the people in World War I who are just pawns to be used on a battlefield and slaughtered if need be? Uh, for the interests of the, the bankers and other people who obviously always maintain their distance and, and use these forces as just pawns on, on a chessboard. So recently we've seen the, uh, well, we've heard the talk of the establishment of the Shanghai Energy Exchange in which uh, China is going to be creating a new oil benchmark that will be denominated in yuan. And this will undoubtedly be used by China's main trading partners, including, of course, Russia, as a way of accruing yuan uh, for the oil that they sell to China, which is, of course, the world's largest oil importer at, at the moment. And this relates to the Shanghai Gold Exchange, which was started last year, uh, in which the Chinese created a gold exchange, which, again, bypasses the US dollar. The gold is denominated or measured in yuan. The spot price is fixed in yuan and gold is convertible into yuan. So we have a situation where, for example, Russia can sell its oil to China for yuan and take those yuan and exchange them to gold, 
which Russia has been buying uh, quite quite a bit in recent years, uh, potentially foreseeing the day when the U.S. dollar would be eclipsed as the world reserve currency, something that's been talked about for many years, but the actual mechanism for that to occur hasn't really been consolidated until this point. We're starting to see these different uh, abilities to, to circumvent the U.S. dollar system really coming into view and really taking shape. And China is at the nexus of this, and the China-Russia relationship will be an extremely important part of that. But China's bilateral relations with a number of different countries now involve trade in yuan uh, and local currencies, completely bypassing the U.S. dollar. It may be the death by a thousand paper cuts um, that is eroding the, the 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 status of the U.S. dollar as the world reserve currency, and it may it may still be some years off. But I think we at least see what that looks like at this point, and the fact that we really could see a completely different monetary order emerging on the other side of this world war conflict. Well, the U.S. has essentially been operating since 1971 when the Bretton Woods system was formally abolished and Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard. The U.S. has been operating on the petrodollar system where the pricing of oil in dollars and the recycling of those dollars in through the U.S. banking system by the Saudis and others has been a, a prop um, which has propped up the U.S. dollar and made it still the world reserve currency. And that has always been backed up with the gun or the threat of the gun, um, which of course is the backbone of the American empirical system. Now, if we see the erosion of that US dollar status, if we see the erosion of the petrodollar, then the question is who is going to fund the trillion dollar operations in Iraq and Afghanistan and these other excursions that the US empire until now has been able to afford on the back of this world monetary hegemony, which in a sick way, China has really financed things like the Afghan war and the Iraq war because of the trading system and their trading relationship with the US and their accumulation of US dollar reserves and their purchases of US treasuries in the past that has essentially funded. Um, the US is happy to print as much debt as they need to wage their wars as long as other people will buy it. At the point at which there is a viable and, uh, and functioning alternative to that US dollar system, it is not only conceivable, it's extremely likely that more many countries would be even politically motivated to make that bypass, let alone economically motivated, in order to... Uh, to undermine that uh, U.S. hegemony and, and power. And the monetary aspect of this, I think, can't be underestimated how important that is to whatever potential changes we're going to see as a result of this. And that, too, I think, has been foreseen and engineered uh, to occur. Uh, we saw in the wake of the 2008 crisis, um, we saw a number of uh, countries, but including China, advocating for the IMF, uh, to administer a new type of world reserve currency and talking about the special drawing rights that the IMF uses as being perhaps that new world monetary system. And we've seen everything that China has done over the last several years aiming at the goal of being part of that special drawing rights basket, which in fact they were added to uh, in 2000. I want to say 15. It might be 2016. But they were recently added to the IMF special drawing rights basket. And that is, I think, the system, or at least a, a, a view of what the system 
will look like. Whether or not it will be specifically the IMS special drawing rights, it probably will be some sort of administered currency basket that it may even be uh, like the special drawing rights, a currency that you and I can't use. We can't go into a store and buy anything with it. It is only used for reserves between central banks. And on the back of that, they will issue their local currencies. So you'll still have your kroners, you'll still have your euros, you'll still have your dollars. But behind this system will be an international architecture run by institutions like the IMF or the United Nations or the World Trade Organization that people maybe may not even understand, but really will be a global currency of some sort. One thing that's important to keep in mind is that World War I looks, uh, looked nothing like anything anyone had ever experienced before. Uh, including the people who had been thinking about warfare and strategizing, it became very apparent very quickly that this was something completely different from any previous conception of warfare. And that was, of course, because of some of the technologies that were now available, machine guns and airplanes and poison gas and other things that could be used on the battlefield and as a result were used on the battlefield that changed people's conceptions. And also... Uh, on the home front, people's understanding of warfare and the value of war and why people were going off to die changed considerably from the end of the, the beginning of the war to the end of the war so that you have uh, the nationalist fervor of go to die for king and country um, that was whipped up pre-war looking ridiculous, looking absolutely insane after the carnage of World War I. And there was a societal change that took place there too. And so, and similarly, I think in our current day and age, we can't really understand or imagine until we are in the midst of it what World War III would even look like. I think if there's anything we can say for certain, we know it won't look like World War I. It will not look like World War II. It will not look like previous military engagements. Um, whether or not it involves military confrontation, it may it will involve other aspects, including financial and economic warfare. It will involve cyber warfare and potentially new platforms, uh, new, new theaters, uh, all the way into outer space, space warfare. There are so many variables going on where, again, we know the technology has changed, but we don't know how that affects what warfare will look like. And this is something that's keeping a lot of Pentagon advisors and think tanks and others employed, um, working feverishly on creating their schemes for what this will look like. At the end of the day, again, I don't think anyone actually really knows what it will ultimately look like, because as engineered as these conflicts are, I think they wind up the toys and let them go and do their carnage and destruction. And at the end of the day, I don't think they care at all what happens to the pawns on the chessboard, the people who are actually involved in this. Uh, in some way, I'm sure they get a sadistic pleasure out of seeing the way that their their wind-up toys go off and do their, their destruction. So I don't know what World War III will look like, and I can't even say for certain that we are not already living through it. Um, if we count the financial and economic aspects of warfare as part of this total war that I think World War III will be, there are ways, as, as we've outlined with the monetary system and others, that it may already be happening. So it's not even a question of necessarily a declaration of war and armies lining up on a battlefield. The only question is, when will we understand that we are in the midst of it? And ultimately, what can we do about that? And I think that might be the most important question, because like any war that has ever been waged, 
what would happen if they had a war and no one came is the is the old phrase and i think that's that's extremely important because it points to the power of the individual to refuse to take part in an engineered conflict that has been engineered not for their benefit and not for the benefit of anyone that they know where they are being asked to be the pawns to go off and die or win or do whatever for the benefit of other people um, who are not taking part in the conflict. The individual's power has always been in refusing to serve. And from that, we can also learn, learn a lesson from World War I that is not often talked about, but there were deserters. There were people who refused to obey orders in World War I. In, uh, it's difficult, of course, to get accurate, accurate numbers on this because armies do not like to talk about these things. But we do know that 306 British soldiers were shot to death by firing squads because they either deserted their units or uh, disobeyed orders to go over the top and engage in the pointless conflict of World War I. Interestingly enough, in 2006, the British government pardoned all 306 of those soldiers. So don't worry, everyone. It's the government even thinks it's okay for you to disobey their pointless and stupid orders. And I think that is where our power lies in not engaging in these conflicts and not putting our identity in conflicts that have been engineered around us. It's difficult to know uh, why the switch that has been flipped in the past year has been flipped from China as the boogeyman to Russia as the boogeyman took place. And I'm not convinced that there is necessarily strategic reasons to it. I think it has something to do with domestic politics in the United States. And if that is the case, then this may just be part of a, uh, a ping pong match uh, going on right now between various military planners and what have you. I think the fundamental underlying part is um, it, it, whether it is Russia as a boogeyman or China as a boogeyman, it still functions in the same way. And Russia and China clearly are part of the encirclement that's going on right now. NATO's encirclement of both countries being part and parcel uh, in, indistinguishable so that the THAAD uh, missiles that have been deployed to South Korea can certainly be targeted against China, can certainly be targeted against the US. Uh, uh, what's going on in Eastern Europe obviously hems in Russia, but I think also affects uh, China and its influence in Eurasia. So I think whether or not Russia or China is the boogeyman du jour, I think these two powers are being driven into each other's arms to a certain extent, which itself is interesting because Russia and China have for quite a while now historically had quite deep divides. They've never been close allies, but they are becoming much close, more closely entwined uh, as a result of this encirclement that they're feeling. And I think that too is part of the engineering of this conflict, the engineering of the other side of the conflict, because of course you, it takes two to tango, so you need to have an enemy. And this is the best enemy that uh, Washington and its cohorts can create at the moment. One hundred years ago, the most devastating war the world had ever seen came to an end. In the craters of those battlefields lay the fallen. But why? What was World War I about? What did it mean? For a century, we have been told a partial history of that war. But now, 
we can finally learn the truth about the First World War. This is false history. It's not even acceptable to call it fake news. It's just disgusting. So what these people gained was the foothold for world government. And now the time came to slaughter some part of the sheep. The World War I Conspiracy. Watch the documentary for free at CorbettReport.com slash WWI.